Good morning, everyone. Ooh, I'm booming. Let's go. Um, welcome to our Equip Hour. Looking forward to getting back into the book of James with you all this morning. If you found your way there, there's a, a note sheet on the back two chairs. If you didn't get one, feel free to get up and go get it if you'd like that. If not, you can grab it after. I promised my family I wouldn't mention them, but my family is here from out of town, so I'm happy that they're here. My dad, my stepmom, Oklahoma mom, my brother and his wife, so glad to be spending Memorial Day weekend with them. Thank you for being here with us. We're in James chapter 1. We're going to end James chapter 1 this morning, verses 26 and 27. And it's all about the concept of authenticity. That's what these two verses are all about. So if you take your minds into a, a thing we know that's common but also precious, let's say a $100 bill. That's a lot of money, $100 bill. I looked this up and there are at least eight ways for someone to verify physically, just with the naked eye, that that $100 bill is accurate, that it's authentic. And some of you have done this, right? Anybody take the currency and hold it up to the light, you see the watermark? So that's, that's one way you can know. Our U.S. government's really creative with making sure things are authentic, and so they also weave red and blue threads throughout the fabric of the bill. How you do that, I have no idea, but they do it. And I'm thankful they do, right? Um, they even put a micro-printed security thread in that bill that has words on it. Like, this is the U.S. 10, this is the U.S. 20, this is the U.S. 100. They match up the data of the year printed in one area of the bill inside the numbers of the serial number on the bill. So did the, you know, are the, do those match up? They have raised printing on the paper of the bill. And one that's not necessarily to the naked eye but was really cool is that micro thread that's in it also has something to do to where it reacts to ultraviolet light. To where they can shine the ultraviolet pin on that thing and it's gonna glow. And if it doesn't glow, that bill's not authentic. There's at least eight ways that we can look at the authenticity of a banknote. But this morning, we're going to look at something more precious, something more important, and the authenticity of it, the authenticity of faith. We know that the theme of James as a whole book is these are the effects of true saving faith. Everything we read in James, the effects of true saving faith is what we're seeing. And where we've been in James so far in chapter 1 is we're seeing... Jewish believers, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, they've been dispersed. Dispersed from where is a really good question, in Jerusalem. And if you go back to Acts chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, what's happening in Jerusalem? The Holy Spirit has come upon the apostles and the numbers of that church are growing by the thousands. You have a whole bunch of new converts in Christ, they're growing they're coming to Christ out of Judaism, and uh, they are converting, and then all of a sudden persecution hits, and they get dispersed. And James, the pastor of that church, is writing to them saying, I want to encourage you. You're in a different place now. You're surrounded by different cultures. You're surrounded by different people that aren't your neighbors, some friendly, maybe some not friendly. You're definitely surrounded by people that aren't believers. And these are the effects of true saving faith. Last Sunday, Wade took us through the, the verses prior to 26 and 27 with an illustration of look in the mirror. 
Look in the mirror. If you're a believer and you look in the mirror of God's word, you will have one, a teachable heart. God's word will teach you, it'll instruct us and we'll respond. And then because you love the Lord your God, the second thing we'll do is we'll consistently obey as best we can. We'll put that forth. And this morning we hit the third aspect of looking in the mirror is, is my religion or my, my pursuit of God authentic? Is it authentic? Is it genuine? And that's where our text comes in today. This is James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. I'll read it for us this morning. It says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The theme of our text this morning is that authentic religion or authentic faith begins from a God-prompted heart change. God changes our hearts and it exhibits itself by loving him and loving others. And we'll see that come to life this morning. Before we dive into the text, let's go ahead and pray. Father, Lord, we are so thankful this morning for multiple things. Uh, we're thankful to be here with others, to worship you and to fellowship. We're thankful for how we can sing and worship coming in the next hour of service. We're thankful that as we read in this text, that you are our father, that you love us like a father loves his children. Lord, we're so thankful that you have given us your word, like James, that we can know what are the right responses to your word. And Lord, this morning as we dig in and we evaluate what are the right responses? That you would open up that mirror. You'd open up our hearts and have that mirror reflect the truth to us. Lord, where we can grow, where we can praise you for past growth. Lord, open our hearts and have us be humble before you this morning as we react to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to finish that look in the mirror. We're going to go ahead and go through it and we're going to see if our response to God's word is one that's authentic or not. In this text, we see two assessments. We don't have eight proofs. We just have two assessments of what is authentic faith. The first assessment is man's. And the second assessment is God's. You could probably think forward and see which one is right or not. We're going to explore both of them. Right? So if we look at chapter 1, verse 26, this is man's assessment. It says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So let's start taking this apart. It says, if anyone thinks himself. And that phrase, if anyone thinks, is a, is a declarative statement by self. It's like, this is how I see myself. This is how I think. This is how I understand. This is what I believe about myself. If you were to ask me to give myself a test and evaluate it, I would say, this is me. If anyone thinks himself and to be something, to be religious, so if anyone thinks himself to be religious, this is an adjective right here, and it means the external acts of religion. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, as now we're thinking, okay, I am religious. Well, how do I know that? Well, because I do all these things. I do all the worship things. I do all the church attendance things. I do all of the going to the temple things. I do, I do all of these things. In Acts chapter 26, verse 5, Paul uses the same word describing his life as a Pharisee, so you can see how it's used. It says, they have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, there's our word, it's a noun there, strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. We know Paul's story. 
how when he lived as a Pharisee, he was following Judaism and he was doing his utmost to keep every command because if he kept every command, then he would be right with God. This external religion. So I'm gonna ask you, participate with me. What are the things that we see that are external religious acts? Just that, the external. Attendance. Going to small group. Thank, thank you. That's not a plant. I'm over small groups. Stephen says go to small groups. That's good. What are other things? Reading the Bible, baptism and communion like we did last Sunday, the ordinances. Yes, those are external things. I didn't say bad things. So if you're thinking like I have to think of bad or good, I'm not saying bad or good. Just the external things. Giving. Service. Service. Yeah. Mission trips. Say it again. Public prayer. Public prayer. Yeah. Jesus corrects us quickly on the praying in public just to see people notice us, right? But it's an, it, those are those external acts, public prayer, right? Serving in the church in any kind of capacity. I've been with the little guys forever and mm, yeah, I've been doing it. External acts, you know? I move chairs, all of those things. We see all those external acts. Okay, it doesn't mean those are good or bad, but the ones we listed, did you see some that were biblical? Like, that's a good one. Like, yeah, I should come to church. I should pray. I should serve. We named all the good ones, right? I didn't hear any of the ones like, I guess I can't, my mind just blanked on bad ones. So we'll just skip it. Uh, We didn't hear any of those, right? So the question is, this man who thinks himself to be religious, which we know at the end of the verse, if you look ahead, it says this man's religion is worthless. Why don't those things that are biblical count towards describing his religion as worthwhile? We have to answer that question. Why? They're in the Bible, but is God concerned with external acts like sacrificial systems and all the Old Testament acts? And now the New Testament ones, we just listen. He's concerned with those, or is he concerned with some other part of you? Other part of you. That other part of you is shaped like a little Valentine's picture. We call it the Heart, yeah, he's concerned with our heart. Not the organ doesn't pump blood well enough, but it's the idea of like, what is your internal thinking? Jesus uh, instructs us uh, to this in in, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37, and I'll read this for us. Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37, he cares about the heart. This says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. He's talking to the Pharisees here. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned, because your words speak out of your heart. And it's not just Jesus that instructs us that way. If you go all the way back to King David when he was anointed by Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we know that story. Samuel was going to that family thinking, all right, one of these guys is going to be the next anointed king. I'm really excited. I want to find him. And so Jesse lines up his sons. And I'll read it for us. And it says, and they being the sons, when they entered, he looked at 
Eliab, the oldest, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is wanting to look at what is internal to you. What is, what is your heart? What is your understanding? What is your thinking? What is the source and status of your soul? And that's how he makes an assessment. But man's thinking, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, I'm doing all these things. But look at the next clause of verse 26. I'm doing all these things and yet does not. And yet does not appears. And this does not do certain things. There's two things he does not do. And this sets up the contrast of man's thinking about himself and the truth about himself. The first and yet does not shows up as he does not bridle his tongue. He doesn't bridle his tongue. This, this word bridle, it's a participle meaning bridling. He's not actively bridling his tongue at all, which means he's letting it go. He's letting it rain. He's letting it say whatever it wants to say. We know when we get to James chapter 3, we're going to see the tongue described as an illustration much more power. So I'm not going to steal all that thunder. But it does describe it as the power of a horse unleashed or just power of a, the wind propelling a ship on the ocean. These are great forces at play here. And this tongue is unleashed. It, he does not bridle it. He lets it run free. As an illustration, to put it in maybe a current more setting, imagine a car running down the highway and... Tesla's gotten in trouble for this a couple times, right? And just imagine that accelerator is just depressed to its max. And that thing's zooming. And you look over, and there is no human guiding that thing. There's no one at the wheel. And there's not even a computer guiding that thing. That, wheel, that car is out of control, careening down the road. Tons of things could happen that are bad. Mayhem could take place. People could get hurt. People could get killed. Things could be destroyed. That's the illustration of a tongue out of control. It's unbridled, it's unchecked. What does our tongue do that could get us into trouble? Or, okay, what does a tongue do that could get someone into trouble? It's always easier if you don't participate, like it's not me. So let's talk about that other person. Gossip. It gossips. Angry and, mm, angry and hateful words designed to cut like a sword. Stirs up strife, speaks hastily without thought. It lies. It condemns and it prompts condemnation for us. It's a false witness. It complains. We know this thing. Yeah. Yeah, the that, that is what the tongue does. Slanders, maligns, lies, swears, filthy language. It doesn't edify. It hates. We heard all those things. Again, in chapter 3, when you get to the tongue, not only does it do that, but it, it blesses on one hand and it curses on the other, so it's, it waffles, right? It's, it's double-minded. The commentator Kistemacher says it this way. He says, from man's point of view, the hasty word, the shading of the truth, the subtle innuendo, and the questionable joke are shrugged off as insignificant. Yet from God's perspective, they are a violation of the command to love the Lord God and to love one's neighbor as oneself, a single breach of this command renders man's religion of no avail. And we know in chapter 2, we'll get there in maybe one Sunday or two, verse 10, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Now this man that we're looking at that is assessing himself as religious, he thinks himself to be religious, 
and yet does not bridle his tongue. And we just went through, certainly he knows that his tongue does all things. All those things we talked about. But yet he doesn't respond. He doesn't, his, his thinking, something, it's off. His evaluative assessment is wrong. But he misses it. Why does he miss it? How can he not see that, man, I, on one hand I do these things, but on the other my tongue is just killing people. And it's because of the next clause in verse 26. And yet he does not bridle his tongue, but he deceives his own heart. That word deceive means to be misled. And it's a present active participle, just like bridling. So he's, he's deceiving. It's continuous. Which means, if we all think about this, is he's acting according to his nature. He can't see it and respond. He can't see that his heart is wicked and he needs to change. His understanding, his source of truth, they're all wrong. And this is the third time in chapter 1 alone we've seen this warning and this encouragement from James to say, look at what you're thinking. In chapter, 16, in chapter 1, verse 16, we saw that we are deceived in our thinking by looking at temptations. In verse 22, we saw that we're deluded by looking at God's word but not doing it. And then here in 26, we see that we're deceiving our heart by not seeing that we have an unbridled tongue. We have a heart that's out of control. It's wicked and we don't want to do anything about it. But this isn't a foreign concept to us. We see it today, don't we? A whole bunch of people running around doing whatever they want, however they want to think, however they want to behave, and thinking, no, it's, this is about me. I'm fine. I can live a different lifestyle. I can choose to believe that what you have is mine and you have to abide. All those things that are going on in this world, the futility of man's thinking, it comes from a dead and sinful heart. So we have to have a question that this guy's he obviously sees that his tongue is going crazy, but his heart is misled. But why does he have to stay this way? Why does he have to stay in that, that setup? And it's because they're acting according to their nature. Their heart is misled. Their own inner awareness is off. And they lay their hands on the wrong evaluation. They think they're in a good spot, but they're not. Their assessment is not the same as the Lord's. Wade went to Matthew chapter 7 last week, and it's so appropriate. I'm going to go there again. But I'm going to read 15 to 27. So find your ways to Matthew chapter 7. We'll start in verse 15. I specifically want you to pay attention to verses 21 and 23. But find your ways there to Matthew chapter 7, and we'll read on it together. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 is where we're going to start. Verse 15, it says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Verse 21 is how we can know what God looks at. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father is in heaven will enter. So there's God's standard. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And verse 23 is man's standard. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's not their external acts. It's their heart. They're practicing lawlessness. You can't live a lawless life before the Lord and think, well, I did enough things. Certainly you'll let me in. Yet that is a common justification that humans today have. I've done enough good. I haven't done the worst things. 
but they're using a system that's off. If you go back to verse 21 of chapter 7, it says, he who does the will of my father, that man who is in heaven will enter. And the rest of that section in Matthew chapter 7, you get the illustration of the house built on the rock and the house built on the sand. When someone places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then their heart is regenerated and their house is built on the rock. They'll be operating as God would have them to operate. We'll get to that a little bit more. Uh, But the last part of our verse, you can go back to James chapter 1 now. Thank you for going to chapter 7 of Matthew. The last part of James chapter 1 is the true assessment of this man's religion. He thinks he's doing it. But look at the last phrase. It says, this man's religion is worthless. The Holy Spirit through James is evaluating this man. And he's making, the Holy Spirit's making his own declaration through James. He says, this man's religion is worthless. We just read in Matthew chapter 7 how Jesus is going to respond to those people on that day. He says, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. That is a fearful place. That is a scary place. Sooner or later, the unbeliever is going to show their, their true heart, their unbridled tongue. They're going to show it through their actions. It's not just their words. It comes from a, a, a sinful heart that is unrepentant, and it lives itself out. And only the light of the gospel can regenerate someone and give them a new heart and a new nature. So it's a question. I don't know everybody's heart in here. I can't see your hearts. We can see actions, but I want us to evaluate our hearts. Like, where are we? Are we on the external religious side of the the, the, uh, the, the T-chart, I work in finance. We do things in T-charts, right? So are we on the left side of that? Or are we on the, the right side where it says God evaluates it? We know that the only hope that we have to have any of our efforts, actually it doesn't matter what efforts, have any hope in Christ to, to, to live and be apprised as God that's not as a worthless religion, but as one that's worthwhile, is through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. I was encouraged by Ephesians chapter 2 to see the gospel there this, this week as, we were, as I prepared. And we know where we are in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. We're dead in our sins is what that says. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But I love verse 4. Verse 4 shows that God has a plan for us. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our transgression, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And if we skip ahead to verse 8 and 9, we see how that occurs. It's by faith alone and Christ alone. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Only God can regenerate a dead heart. Only God can take someone who's trying to think like this man, that I'm doing all these things. Of course I'm justifying myself before God, but his nature is dead and regenerate him and give him a new heart. So the question we have before us today is then, well then, then how does God assess, if external actions don't get us there, then how, do, how does God assess sincerity of our response to the gospel? We know that the theme of James is the effects of true saving faith. So how do I know I'm doing it right? How do I know? It's verse 27. He helps us. He doesn't leave us in the dark very long. It's just one verse later. So if we go to verse 27, we'll see it. It says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So this is God's definition of religion. He calls it pure and undefiled 
in the sight of God, of our God and Father. In the Greek, religion is the actual first word. And as we've learned from the, the Greek language, if you put the word first, it's the emphasized word. So if religion is first, God's calling the moment and saying, religion is this way. It's not this other way. It's there's only one way that this exists. If you're going to be religious in this way, then you're going to, in a God-approving way, it's going to look like this. And so the NIV actually catches it. If you read the NIV's version of chapter 27, it says, religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless. That's what God is setting up the standard as, is pure and faultless. He gets to define what proper religion is. So you might be thinking, at least I was when I studied this, like, oh, this is it. Whatever comes next is a checkbox of listed things that I need to do so that I will be justified. And it was a temptation to think that way. But God knows our hearts. He knows us. And he knows, nope, I'm not going to give you a checkbox list of things because then you'll just go try to do them and you'll think you're fine and your heart won't be addressed. Instead, he gives us principles and illustrations of extremes. And that's what we find next. So the principles he gives us, he calls them pure and undefiled. So on one side of the coin, they're pure, they're positive, they're holy, they're moral. And that word undefiled on the negative side of the coin is that they're not defiled, they're unsoiled, they're free from that by which the nature of a thing is deformed or debased. And God defined these terms because it says in the sight of our God and Father. This is how God sees them, not how man sees them, but how God sees them. And he's told us all throughout his word how he looks at someone who's following him. I'm going to bounce through a couple texts. You can write down the references, but Old Testament and New, so they know all of Scripture says the same thing. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So we, now he's addressing what we love, and we love him. In Leviticus 19, 2, he says, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now we know his standard, holiness. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he tells, us, he tells us how to live. He says, he's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Is that that's the expression of your hearts as you walk before him. In Galatians chapter 3.11, he says this. He says, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. And those of us that were thinking list is a good idea, he says it's not. It's by faith alone in Christ alone is how we're justified before God. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 13, it says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So what's this summation of what it looks like for someone to have a proper response to God's word? And Jesus was asked this very question. He was asked this very question in Matthew chapter 22. He was asked, what is the great commandment? Which is the one that I really have to follow because I only want to have a list, right? And he was asked that question. In Matthew chapter 26, 36 to 40, he reads, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, knowing their hearts, he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In summary, love God with all you have and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard. That's the picture. And we can evaluate our hearts off of that. But before we start thinking, well, what does it look like? There's a cool phrase that we just read, in the sight of our God and Father. 
So lest we start thinking there's a big list, he's a holy God, I'm a sinful human being, this is a very cold and uncaring place. He's in sight of our God and Father. So if you think about scripture, what are places where you see God as Father that encourages you? I don't want to miss God's character, how much he loves us as we talk about that this morning. Where do you see God as Father that encourages you in scripture? You don't have to give the reference, the concept is fine. The prodigal son, where God as Father lifts up his robe, runs and embraces that wayward son that is now coming back thinking, just let me be a slave. But he embraces him. Yes, what an excellent picture of God as Father. Mary. Yeah. And then God comes and says, hey, you're not going to die in the wilderness. I even have a purpose for you. Right? You see God caring about the unrighteous. Right? Yeah. Brooke mentioned Jonah. We can see ourselves in Jonah. I don't want to do that. You know, I mean, no, I don't want to do that. Those people are terrible. We can see ourselves in Jonah. But God is patient with us and then even shows us his character and his will and how he is the one that is sovereign. Yes, lots of cool pictures about God as father. Remember, that is who your father is. He cares about you. We'll get there in Hebrews. He's going to discipline us as a father who loves his children. Right? So remember God as father. Be encouraged. Remember James as his pastoral heart is writing to these people who are dispersed. And they are probably discouraged because they've been kicked out of their homes. They're running for their lives. They're trying to resell in another place. And life is difficult. And he's saying live. Remember, live like I have called you to live. Have a heart. That, that speaks out of your love for me and your love for others. So be encouraged. It's a reminder, not a rebuke. But he describes two things now in the verse 27 of what it would look like if we're actually doing this. And he pulls, in, he pulls a couple, uh, at least one, he pulls an extreme out here. And this is, what is it to love God and others like this? And if we look in verse 27, we're going to say he's going to visit someone. To go visit orphans and widows in their distress. And this verb to visit isn't just like, oh, I went and sat with them or I said hi and I left. This word visit means it has an intent of care, right? You have intent to go care about them, to meaningfully make a difference in their lives because I want them to be better. I want to help them in their distress. That's this word to visit. God has used the orphan and the widow to show that this is the least of the people around you throughout Scripture. But also in society, when James was writing and the Holy Spirit inspired those words, in society... This was a society that didn't have a, a welfare system. It didn't have social systems. This is a society where if you were able to work and work the ground and have a trade, then you could then sell your grain or sell your trade and then get money to buy food and then redo that cycle all over again. So who are we talking about? We're talking about orphans. We're talking about widows. Do those two people in that society have the means to do those things? And the answer is no, they do not. These are the lowest of the low in that society. So God's pushing us. We're going to love others. He's pushing us to think, love those who you would think most unlovable in that society. Is where he's taking our hearts and our minds with this illustration. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 5 to 7, uh, the prophet uh, 
uh, instructs the people that are about to be taken into captivity. He says, captivity says, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. But we know that God's word doesn't just leave, hey, just care about the orphans and the widows. If you just care about the orphans and the widows, you'll be fine. We know that's not the point. We know that's not the point. Turn to 1 John, if you will, and we'll see God's standard of loving others very clearly expressed. 1 John, we're going to chapter 2. He doesn't want us to only love widows and orphans, although we should take care of them. That's commanded in Scripture. But he's made this really clear that we love him when we love other people. 1 John chapter 2, verse 10 says, Then one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you go forward a couple verses to verse 14 and 16, we keep reading. It says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And then go to chapter 4, if you would, please. Of 1 John, chapter 4. And it reads, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So yes, the orphan and the widow, as an illustration of the extremely low in society, but God's word is really clear. We love others because we love him. We love others because we love him. And Jesus sets this record straight. You can go back to James now. Thank you very much. In John 13, 34 to 35, he sets up uh, what it is to love one another. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And you know that the hearers at the time, they're going to say, that's not new. You've told us that from the beginning. But he clarifies it. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Did you catch the definition switch? Even, has, even as I have loved you, as Christ has loved you. How did Christ love humanity? That's an open question. How... He died on the cross, Mary. Unconditionally. He served us. Think about his ministry on earth before the cross. What did he do? He healed. Yes. Great compassion, Craig says. He taught. He instructed. He had patience with people that he knew were going to kill him. That's the standard of love, Brandon. He went to the lowly. He sat with the sinners. He touched a leper, which in that society was crazy. You don't touch lepers. And he healed them. He healed the blind, healed the sick. Even when John the Baptist asked, well, are you the Messiah? He wrote back or sent back. 
It's like, well, look at what's happening. The dead are raised. You know, the, the sick are healed. The blind see again. I'm teaching scripture. He says, yes, I am the Messiah. That is, a, that is what he says. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. So we're looking at that mirror. We're saying the mirror is showing me who I am. This is the uncomfortable part of today. The mirror is showing who I am. Jesus has set a standard of what it is to love one another. Do we love one another like that? Not in the healing, that's, those are, but in the caring for, in the praying for, in the loving, right? Do we love each other like that? So I'll open it up practically. What does loving others look like? Let's start with believers. What does loving other believers look like? You encourage them, which means you have to come alongside and to encourage them, you have to know what? What's discouraging them? So that is probably not a passing conversation that we have on Sunday mornings, which is okay to say, hey, how are you? I'm doing fine. We should probably think in our head, I wonder. And not in a, like, I think you're lying to me, but it's like, that's a surface conversation, right? That's a surface conversation. So is there a way that I can get deeper? Encourage them. Yeah. What other ways? Serve them. Yeah. Okay, so Stephen teed me up. I was going to say something about small groups, and I'm the small groups guy, right? But Stephen said it first, so I can say it now, right? Is that we have that. When someone needs a meal, you, you take them a meal, right? If someone needs help with their home or whatever, and you don't know how to do it, call up. Yeah, of course I'll go help you. We serve them. Yeah. Other ways. Believers, other believers. How do we love them? Say it again. We forgive them when they sin against us. Yes. We speak the truth and not just like, ah, this is the truth. In love, Brooke says, we speak the truth in love. We're kind. The parts about them that rub us the wrong way, we let love cover over those. Yeah, that's how we treat other believers. Yeah, all those ways. Okay, now, same exercise, but unbelievers. Unbelievers. We, someone mentioned already that, uh, Mary, it may have been you, right? That God cares for even the unrighteous, right? So how do we love unbelievers? A lot in the same ways. Oh, that's interesting. It's convicting. And we share the gospel. That speaking the truth in love may take a different set of words, right? I'm encouraged. But we can also encourage a believer in the gospel too. Remember the gospel. Remember how... God has grace with you, right? That we can encourage that way. But yeah, the same ways. We serve them. We come alongside of them. Your neighbor. The theme of Reach Week, which is this one in small groups, was, you know, coaches and people interact with your kids and like your sports and all those things. Yeah, how do you love them? It's a great opportunity to show God's grace to someone. We meet their physical needs. We meet their spiritual needs. We rebuke Believers, if we need to, we reprove each other, we teach each other, we instruct each other. Lots of ways. That's what he means by to visit orphans and widows. To love others like you would love yourself. To love them according to God's standard. But he gives us another example in verse 27. Not only to visit orphans and widows in their distress, but he says next something else. He says to keep oneself unstained by the world. So this isn't your external actions going outward. Now he's saying... How do you manage your heart? He says to keep oneself unstained by the world. This word to keep 
It's this keeping the status. It means God has saved you. He's regenerated your heart. And there are things that will flow out of that you need to keep pursuing. It's an ongoing word. It's an ongoing action. Another way to think about it, this is our, our bridling of our tongues. This is a restraint of our sinful hearts. And we're keeping ourselves unstained by the world. And that world is not cosmos, the world, hey, well, just, you know, the universe might get some gamma rays on you and you have to keep unstained by that. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about the world system that we live within. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, we read that a little bit earlier, but it calls it out. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He's saying, let that world not impact you. And there's two ways this happens. There's a negative way, which is resist it, which we'll look at. And there's a positive way, which is what should we be doing, right? So let's look at the negative way, the resist side first. Both Peter and John comment this way in Scripture better than I could, so I'll share what they have said with you. In 2 Peter chapter 3, 14, Peter writes this. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So he's saying, resent, resist the world around you. Be spotless, be blameless, right? Pursue righteousness. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, you may know these, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life summarized. Don't resist that. Don't pursue that. Don't walk after that is half of what this keeping yourself unstained by the world means. The other half is what do you do? What do you participate in then? If you're not going to participate in the world, what do you participate in? In, and this is where the word sanctification shows up in your outline. We're supposed to grow in Christ's likeness. What are we supposed to participate in? Again, Peter and John in the same passages instruct us. Peter writes, continuing in chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verse 17, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Just, you can even ask yourself, put that mirror up, it's like, how do I practically, proactively guard myself from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And am I doing that? But he doesn't leave us there. Be on your guard. Why? So that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Verse 18 says, but instead grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 26 to 29, John writes, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Again, the world system is trying to pull us away. We're resisting it. We should be doing something, though. He says, As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. That's the Holy Spirit. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. There's one we should write down. How do I go about proactively, practically abiding in the Lord in my daily life? How do I do that? There's that mirror again. Am I doing that? Am I following in that? In verse 28, he continues in 1 John chapter 2. He says, now little children, abide in him. Why? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shriek away 
shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So I'm going to ask you all, beyond selflessly serving others, how do we practically abide or live and participate in sanctification in this life? How do we do that? And remember that mirror is looking right at you, so it's good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, transformed by the renewing of our minds by Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our gentleman in verse 26 is thinking according to his standard, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, his heart's not living that out. It's not really happening. Yeah, Romans 12, 2 does catch that, right? Don't be, trans- don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Thank you, Preston. What else? Practically abiding in the Lord. These are answers you know. I just want you to say more about them so that you think more about them. These are not hidden answers. Mary. Yeah, just coming alongside the neighbors, listening, being ready to talk with them and share with them. <laughs> and she's a hard worker. What a good neighbor girl. Good. Excellent. Yeah, so serving them, right? And, and, and understanding God's command to love others like we love ourselves. Um, sometimes I ask questions that are harder than the answers I'm looking for. So I'll just say it. Um, I was thinking of things like, think about our practical daily habits. Are we in the word? And I'm, I'm, I'm going through partners with someone right now, and that's a great study. And it reminded me, when you're in the word, there's reading God's word, which is important. And what else is important about God's word than reading it? Memorizing it is another one. So, Tim, what'd you say? Applying it. You do it. Yes, applying it, right? Memorize it, apply it. How do we grow in our knowledge of God? How do you grow in a knowledge of any concept? You study it, right? So that's another one that hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, oh, how, there's reading and then there's study. And those are different. Both require reading. Maybe podcasts or listening to. There are other forms of, of learning. That's great. They require study. You know, get out there. Grow in your knowledge of God. I should grow in my knowledge of God. If I'm going to live and participate in sanctification, I should do that. Another one that I wrote down is joyful confession of sin. Sin in our lives, looking for in our lives when God's word exposes it to joyfully confess it and repent and to move forward. That's a way to participate, inviting, and we should, not a way, it is a commanded way to participate in loving God and getting to know him more as we continuously keep ourselves unstained by the world. Another one, look for places where your allegiance to God is questioned in your life. 
Look for places where your allegiance to God is questioned or doubtful. If you were to assess yourself honestly, well, you know, I have these pulls to these other places. Maybe it's not even like a sinful place. Maybe it's just a time thing. Look for where those are. I'm not saying there's a, you can't have other time spent and everybody needs to go put on their glasses and library and that's what we do 24 hours a day. But think about just what your heart wants. Think about what you're after. Are you participating in the sanctification that helps keep us unstained by the world? What are our pursuits? What's our worship like as we about to go into worship this next hour? And what about not on Sunday? That was convicting to me. What about not on Sunday? What's my worship look like on Monday through Saturday? Right? These are ways to participate in abiding in the Lord and keeping ourselves unstained by the world. MacArthur has a quote from his commentary that I thought was applicable. He says, in his inmost heart, the genuine Christian longs to speak and do only those things that are holy, pure, loving, honest, truthful, and upright, things that are uncorrupted and unstained by the world. The genuine Christian longs for those things. And I want to long for those things, and we want to long for those things. So that's a good mirror moment. Do I long for those things? How is my longing for those things? The result of someone living according to God's definition of religion, because he's prompted regeneration in your heart, is that that man's religion is worthwhile. He has sanctification and it's demonstrated in his life by visiting orphans and widows, the low, and keeping oneself unstained by the world. That's what it looks like to follow after God. In summary, we looked at two assessments. The first assessment, assessment was about how man sees religion. He sees it by external acts equals I'm justified by God. And we saw the result of that. This man's religion is worthless. And then we saw God's assessment of religion. It's available through the gospel of his son Jesus Christ to all that would place their faith in Christ alone, repent of their sin. And it's pure and undefiled love of God and pure and undefiled love for his people lived out. So in conclusion, I'll just remind us of the three things that Wade started with last Sunday. As you look at God's word, have a teachable heart. Seek that. Have a teachable heart. Long for that. Secondly, as you look at God's word, be consistent in our obedience to what it says. Or as Tim said, let's apply it as we read it. And lastly, show the effects of an authentic heart change. This is a favorite psalm uh, verse of mine that helps me evaluate and assess uh, my longing. It's Psalm 19:14, and I'll end with this. May this be a growing reality in all of our lives. And the psalmist writes, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19:14. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the mirror this morning, the mirror of your word. Um, but Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm more thankful for the mirror of your word in the context of you as our father. That you are good and you care about us and you care about us to the extent that while we were yet sinners, your son Jesus Christ died for us. That through grace, through Christ, through faith that you have given us, we can have a relationship with you not based on our actions, but based solely on the perfect act of Christ as he lived his human life here. Lord, thank you for seeing us 
as you see your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for loving us as a father who is conforming us to his will, to his word, patiently, graciously, with appropriate discipline and rebuke if necessary. Lord, we thank you so much that you do all of those things to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Come quickly, Lord. Make us mature fast. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.